Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, welcome along to V8 Sleuth Podcast for another week. We are coming to you from Melbourne headquarters. Will Dale is in the studio. Hello, Will. How you going? I'm super. I am very super. Uh, I'm a little tired off the back of the Newcastle 500 last weekend, that's for sure. But Why? Did, did something happen there? Was look, it, was a little a bit of stuff went, Yeah, a little bit of stuff went down. There was a bit going on. Yeah, right. Some cars went around and around, some people there to chew them on, a few people put things in wrong places, a few people wouldn't talk about things. You know, there was a bit happening. There was a bit happening. <laughs> yes. But we're not here to talk on this episode of the podcast about what happened in Newcastle because if you want to talk or, or hear all about that, Castrol Motorsport News podcast with AVL and Steph is the place to be uh, out this week. Have a listen to the boys from their episode, all the wrap-up of the Newcastle 500. But for us on the Sleuth Pod, we're already putting our eyes forward. We are down the barrel, out the windscreen, looking at what's next. Well, we look at what's next, but then we're looking at what's behind because <laughs> of it. So, Looking at turn one and in the rearview mirror at the same time. Very skilled drivers we are. Yeah. We're going to take a look on this episode of the podcast at the history of touring cars and supercars at the Australian Grand Prix. Now, we're going to focus in on Adelaide and Albert Park because there's been some amazingly cool stuff happen over the years, some stuff that I'd forgotten about until I sat down and started brainstorming. You've done a far better brainstorm than I have, so you've got a far bigger brain. <laughs> but there's been all sorts of odds and ends over the years from, what, 10 years at Adelaide for the Grand Prix and then Albert Park from 1996 onwards. So we could go back into Calders and all that stuff, but we're going to stick to Formula World Championship – Formula One support races. And I the thing that springs to mind, there's actually so many memorable moments, but they're not part of the championship because, well, only in the last couple of years that it's been part of, of the championship, but because of television rights issues, because of the way it all has sort of been structured in the past, a lot of these aren't celebrated often enough that if they were in the championship. For sure, because like you said, with the TV rights, we can't really show, we don't, we can't reference back to them in the broadcast, so you don't really see them anywhere. And a lot of a lot of w- weird and random things occurred, especially in those early Gr- Adelaide Grand Prix years. And it's a shame that some of those, because those races up until 2018 were not part of the championship, they don't form part of anybody's statistics. So hmm. uh, whether it's for race wins or pole positions, uh, and as the championship's gone on in the modern era, everything's become part of it. It's you know Albert Park eventually did. The Gold Coast did some years ago. They were the two outliers there for a long time. Bathurst in the 500 at Sandown or Queensland or Phillip Island, it came into the championship, what, over 20 years ago now. Mm. So the, the Grand Prix was kind of the last thing to be rolled into part of the championship deliverable. So there's a pile of wins and stats and things that don't show up in the overall numbers because – we reference the championship numbers so much because that's all we do is championship racing and achievements and numbers. But there's a couple here that we probably need to add on for some of these guys because it would increase their numbers. And, and then you may be doing it in the supercars era or we probably need to one day, and we can do this all time, all time, everything. Let's put it all together and count them all up because there's so many guys out there who – one, a pile of other stuff that doesn't count in those numbers and it's not quite an accurate it's not quite an accurate portrayal of their success. Well, just purely looking at um Albert Park numbers, I'm sure Russell Ingle would lobby heavily for <laughs> I thought his, you might suggest Russell to be what, added. Was it eight? Eight or nine. There was I think he's still equal or until recently well, at the very least, he's still had as many wins as anyone else or more wins than anyone else. Yeah, because I think going into the now infamous 2020 Grand Prix weekend that he was on eight and I think the nearest guys were Frosty and Van Giz, I think from memory, Mm. of the active drivers and they needed another one or two or something like that. And, of course, event got canned (laughs) before any racing. Russell held his record. Now, I'm not sure if last year – Well, Shane got two. Yeah, Shane got two, so I think he got him in the end. But um, there's plenty of numbers, there's plenty of things, there's plenty of things that happen. And it goes right back, 1985, the very first Australian Grand Prix World Championship event at this amazingly new street track in Adelaide, which has become part of our motorsport landscape 
ever since, not just with the Grand Prix but with the, the 500 supercars race. But the controversy and weirdness started from literally the start of that first touring car race. <laughs> yes, when pole sitter Dick Johnson rolled up to the starting lights and re- or rolled up to grid position one and realised he couldn't see the starting lights from the cockpit of his Mustang. Small issue. Tiny issue. So... <laughs> Well, what did he do? He leaned, he, he leaned he, he, over well, so he could. He hung to, because it was a left-hand drive Mustang, didn't yeah. he? Like, I'm leaning. I'm leaning away from the microphone here. He leaned out to the side into the cabin area to look up underneath the windscreen to see the lights. Yeah, well, he saw till he could see the red light come on. Then he straightened back up, tightened the belts up, counted to three and went and just managed to time <laughs> it, it absolutely perfectly because he had about 150 <laughs> metres on everyone else by the first corner. Well, he did have a rival, though. True. John Harvey... Went a little early, it must be said, in the second of the Mobile Holden Dealer Team Commodores. About nine years too early. He would have taken the heat off of Dick. If anyone was looking for a jump start, he they had, had to look at car yeah, seven. Dick could have snuck away with a little one because Harvey had a mammoth one, mm. huge one. But that wasn't where it ended for him in that That wasn't first even race. the most controversial well, bit of his race. Well, when you think about it, this was wild because it wouldn't happen today, but it blows your mind to think that a Grand Prix driver – was in the touring car support race at the first Grand Prix in Adelaide. Well, you think back to just last year when we all got fizzed up about Fernando Alonso having a run in Thomas Randall's car and Sergio Perez having a run in a red in a triple eight car. And in 1985, Gerhard Berger, so in his first full year of Formula One, so before he joined Ferrari or BM, or Benetton so he, he or was McLaren, with Arrows, he was with Arrows. Yeah, yeah. he the, was a fa- he was a factory BMW driver, and that's what in touring with cars. It, in touring cars, and they had the BMW Megatrons. Engines. But it was rebadged as Megatron, wasn't it? Well, was I it think still, it was BMW? still BMW. Still BMW. That point, but that was that was the link. That was the link. Um, so there were always there were rumours he was and he in, while he was in F one he was still a factory touring car driver. So he did the Spa twenty four hours and a bunch of European touring car races, and also the Australian Grand Prix in the orange car, the orange um, the Bob Jane car, car. That was the Bob Jane car yeah. for Bathurst in eighty five. Yeah, and he was doing very well in the race briefly. 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 And then what happened? Uh, and then John Harvey arrived in his rear bumper at high speed at the centre chicane and dispatched him into the sand on lap two. Well, it wasn't the centre chicane then. No. It, 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 and it wasn't even the same chica- exactly the same no, chicane that we use now. It was really chicane mm. because the old vision there, you see them come through, it's really slow. They can't flow and bounce it across the curbs. It's a really pronounced zigzag around there because yeah. they open it up Later year, on, it was the year, next year because they yeah. figured it was way too tight. And you see, you see now where the tarmac goes beyond that that for the left and left then right at Adelaide. That's where it was, mm, mm. and that's where it started. So Dick Johnson got himself sorted, got his start right, and won the race. So Adelaide became the end of season Australian touring car race, not a part of the championship or endurance championship or Australian touring car championship, but it. It's commonly referred to as the you know the season ender, but it kind of always wasn't because you had the New Zealand series that a lot of Australian teams would go and do at Wellington and Pukekohe. Once that moved from the start of the calendar year to the the end of the calendar year, which came along in in eighty seven when the World Touring Car Round was there, so it held this really unique part of the calendar. And one of the things that sprang into my mind when you used to see sponsorship deals get done for particularly privateers, they were Sandown, Bathurst, Adelaide. They'd be a three-pronged thing. So you'd regularly get a very strong touring car field, not like it's some years where, oh, it's not a part of a championship. I'm not going. It's the Grand Prix for crying out loud. I'm going because a sponsor wants to be there. And it was, you know, those fields were regularly very strong in the 80s to the point where there are over 30 cars in some of those years and teams from here, there and everywhere to be there. Almost 40 at one point. I think for the 86 race, the JPS team expanded to three cars. They have fielded an additional 635 for Trevor Crowe. Yep. Um, and, yeah, it was, a, it was a popular race to be at. Does anyone remember, though, who won the South Pacific Touring Car Championships of it, with which it was a round of in, I think it was 86, <laughs> 86 It was 86. Never mind who won it. Just tell, tell us what the rest, because Adelaide was round two of the South Pacific Touring Car Championships. So, what was uh, three, four, and five? Well, round one wasn't at the South Pacific 300 at Calder. It's, yes, yeah. And then weren't they just New Zealand Touring Car rounds or something like so. that? I believe so, Simpson Series yeah. or B&H Series, yeah, something, along something along those, those lines. lines. I, think, I just presume Gricey probably won that series. Well, he won the 86 Grand Prix touring car race mm. in that white because he'd won the Bathurst race in the Chickadee car. Mm. But Graham Bailey was in the Chickadee car for Adelaide and Les Small had built another car for Gricey to run. That was It was plain white and it was number three, I remember. Correct. 
but it had a Bob little Jane bit of Bob Jane team arts on it. And Gricey won on debut in that car. Uh, and that's the car I think he took to Fuji um, with mm. Graham Crosby to, to round out that season. But that was a standard Grice drive, that one. He fought with Brock at the start. Brock blew up. But wasn't it? there was another issue at the start of that one too. What was it about Grand Prix races for touring cars and issues at the start? Uh, the issue I don't remember. I just remember Jim, Jim Richards, Richards making an absolute that's screamer what I mean. off the – Oh, the fact yeah, that he actually I mean. made a good start was the issue. Yeah, yeah. Because like his 85 championship season, legendarily the 635 had a small clutch and it was hard to get off the line because, you know, European car built for rolling starts in the European Touring Car Championship. Standing starts were not its forte and Richo just absolutely mm. took off and had a, about 50 metres on the field by, by the chicane. Drilled it. Drilled Helped it. in part because – his fellow front row starter, Graham Crosby, made an absolute shocker and held everyone else up. But <laughs> it helps. It, it helps. And in those days, the Grand Prix in Adelaide, those first, I think it was about four years, it was a Saturday afternoon race, mm. 32 laps. I always remember the number. Don't know why. Nerdy thing. And single race, that was it. There was no Sunday racing at all. It was all about the Formula One cars on, on Sunday. But I remember vividly sitting there, Grand Prix time, Saturday, watching it on Channel 9, right through. And, yep, Formula 1, that was nice, qualifying, all that stuff. I was there for the touring cars. <laughs> I was absolutely there. And you got this really unique scenario. you got Murray Walker generally commentating Australian touring car racing, which we got a bit of that later on when he came and did the two-litre Bathurst and mm. stuff like that. But at the time, that was, that was big ticket. He was big news. And it was really different to hear him do touring car racing in Australia with the Aussie names and the Aussie cars. And this is before we had him doing British touring cars that was feeded out to here. He was Formula One, the voice of Formula One. So for him to do touring cars was was kind of cool. And, of course, you can't talk Adelaide Grand Prix and Grand Prix touring cars without a bit of big Daryl. I mean, <laughs> Daryl Eastlake brought it. Whether you loved him or you loathed him, he he made it must-watch TV. He, he, he made you take notice. Oh, Brocky. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, we've jumped what, ahead a few what, years. What, what happened there. then? What was what was the no no no? Brock? Oh, that that was where he had the steering failure at the centre chicane in '92 oh, when he went in the fence. Nice, yeah. nice. Well, not so nice. Well, I remember yeah, that. Not, not, I remember not nice that. Brocky, yeah. Well, eighty. So there, there's all these memorable moments that, as we said at the start of the pod, as you sit there and you go back through them, you go, yeah. What about that? What about this? What about that? Well, Adelaide was the last. So '87, that was Brock's last run in Holden in a touring car. Mm. because it was all over. He was – and I think that was the weekend that he'd actually heard that he'd won Bathurst. It was that day. Yeah. Because it was the handed grid, down was, at Fuji. Yeah. Well, the final round of the World Touring Car Championship was at Fuji that weekend and that was when the Eggenberger cars were scrutineered more closely, let's mm. say, and, um, yeah, found to be illegal. When I think of the Grand Prix too, because it's a Grand Prix, because it's Formula 1 – there was always some different stuff. So remember that that year Brock had five mm. on his car. Could it run the 05? And in latter years at Albert Park at the Grand Prix, there was periods where teams with triple numbers couldn't run triple numbers because Formula One wouldn't allow it. So when when triple – well, it's actually Briggs mm. and tri- before Triple Eight bought that team out, they couldn't run um, 600 on their cat car, which was the you know the number that was connected. They had to run 60. Yeah. Um, I think when, one year. Well, when Bow went to Aussie Mate or to Brad Jones Racing, it was 88 Not instead of 888. Yeah, and same for when Triple Eight had Triple Eight, they had to go. 77? Well, 77. Well, Briggs owned the team in that 03 season mm. um, before they bought it out. But yeah, it was. And, and I think Craig Baird one year, Team Kiwi, it was Car 14. Yeah. Not 021. Just those little things that you remember from over history that the Brock 87 thing triggered me. But Dick Johnson 87. Like the slowest winning speed of a winner in Adelaide. That Sierra's coughing and spluttering its way around. George Fury's hunting him down. And those races on the Saturday afternoons were generally hot. Oh, so absolutely. So turbo cars pretty much hated them. Well, the other thing with 87 is that they were – because that year we they had the Wellington 500 just before that, a lot of teams had to hustle to get back to the Grand – get back for the Grand Prix. Cars came back by boat. And wouldn't you know it, there was a wharf strike in Sydney where most of them were coming in. So I think the DJR car was one of the ones that was delayed back. Uh, Larry Perkins' car was definitely another that was delayed um, on arriving because his car got damaged at Wellington. They hadn't had time to fix it before it went on the boat, so they were planning on fixing it when it got to Adelaide. Um, it got to Adelaide just before opening practice and they couldn't get the car into the circuit. So they've just they've wheeled it out 
on the city streets, fixed it, <laughs> and LPs found a way into the precinct and joined practice. <laughs> As you do, just As drive do. it on in. Yeah. I'm good to go. No, it's a real car. Like I'm, I'm the real deal. <laughs> I'm meant to be here. Yeah, I'm not just some punter just, uh, you know, driving out there in a show car just there to do my thing. Yeah. Uh, that that was the year that was the Casio Commodore, wasn't it, the Casio white car? Casio Commodore and the very expensive AGC finance sticker on the roof because Larry, Larry copped a fine for that because this was in the era where you couldn't have advertising logos above the glass line. And uh, he had that on in Wellington and because the car arrived late, they had a lot to do, hadn't that got missed. Yeah. So the Kiwis actually were a bit more open-minded on that stuff than us. Yes. Yeah, much so. nothing much has changed actually, got to, <laughs> got to tell you. So Larry got his reward though the next year because the Group A era is always referred to how Holden was smashed by the Sierras and the turbo cars, but that was the one day until Bathurst 1990 that the Holden fans could actually put their flag in the ground as their day. And it wasn't just because Larry won, because Denny Holm came second. So yeah, the HSV a, cars were one too. It was an incredible result. We talked you talked before about hot day, hot races. It was 35 degrees that day. So mm. surprise, surprise, all the Sierras, well, the two fast ones, the two Shell Ultra High ones, ran into fuel vaporization issues. So Bow started to drop back in the early stages. Then Dick started to drop back midway through. I think Tony Longhurst blew an engine or blew a turbo in the early stages. And um, the old reliable Holden V8 just trucked on. on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. went to a cruisy 1-2 result except for those laps where Denny decided he was going to race Larry. I think Larry wasn't ready for that, was he? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's so many good memories. And that was the last year that it was a single race. For 89, it went to two races. But in 88, it was for the South Australian Cup. Mm. Does this make Larry Perkins the reigning, defending, all-time South Australian Cup winner? You'd imagine so. Because they never never called it that again. It's true. It was always sponsored by... Answered Air Freight. And Yokohama. Hush Yokohama. Puppies one year. Hush Puppies. Hush Puppies Grand Prix Challenge or whatever it was called. You think about going back to school when you hear that, don't you? You do, yeah. yeah. You do think of school shoes. Yeah, yeah. So for 89, the races went to a, a, a twin – shorter races split. So the longer race Saturday, shorter race Sunday. 10 and a 15 or something like that. Wasn't this when Scaife belted a Skyline HR31 head on into the wall at the chicane? So many cars got damaged in the first three laps of that that Saturday afternoon 89 race. So, yeah, there was that where he got hedged by Win Percy. Um, then further around the lap, there was the accident at the, sh- at the hairpin at the end of Brabham Strait between one of the M3 Motorsport BMWs. I can never remember if it was Dualman or Cotter. And um, Laurie Nelson in the Mustang, where the BMW went over the Mustang's bonnet. (laughs) And then at the final hit, and because they were looking at the replays of that, TV coverage completely missed the accident that occurred at the final hairpin where Dick Johnson got into the back of Andrew Medecki and Medecki crashed, or Medecki, I should say, and crashed his Sierra quite heavily and it caught fire and... Yeah, that was not very good, and Andrew was not pleased about that. Still isn't. No, still no, isn't. Can't blame him. So who won? Longhurst won. Yes, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, Tony Longhurst. And then it won rained on races. the and it rained on the Sunday because, of course, that became the race that Thierry Bootsen won in the mm. Williams in the wet, the first of the wet Adelaide Grand Prix. Not the worst, but pretty bad still. Yes, I actually really still liked the one race on Saturday thing though. Like it threw up some results, but then again. The shorter races did put on some good races in the following, and you got two bites at the Grand Prix Cherry. It's so true. there was plenty of action in that short Saturday '89 race. Like, oh yeah. So Longhurst won, but both Peter Brock and Dick Johnson managed to spin out of the lead in the closing stages. Well, speaking of Brock, that wasn't that year, but the next year. Mm. So I never knew this until recent years, but someone pointed out to me. In fact, the the chap Rupert Kent overseas who owns one of those mobile Sierras. He said, do you realise that Brock drove two different cars in 1990? <laughs> they blew the engine up in the Saturday race and had to start the back, obviously, for Sundays. But if you look closely at the car and the photos, it's it's the spare, it's the other car with 05 on it that they've just rolled out, which, they, you know, you're not allowed to put another car in. Um, you know, once you've... Damage your unless you can fix the engine in it. That car's well, it burned a hole the in the bonnet. The fire, didn't yeah. It? Well, that's <laughs> a bit tricky. Yeah. So not only was Scaife barrel rolling and writing off a GTR that weekend, but Brock <laughs> was doing a bit of a car swap dance uh, that no one. Well, if they knew it at the time on the site at, at the event, and it was known in the industry, it was never really reported. It was never really you know out there. It until, wasn't of great significance. The, no, the key no. thing was Brock was back out there Correct. giving it a red hot go. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Um, 
91, that's the only Australian touring car start for Tommy Sahato. Yes, it is. He tried to start the Oran Park touring car in the previous year but crashed in. Well, he gets a round start for that. Yeah, he started the round, he just didn't finish. Well, he finished, he finished it, it prematurely with a concrete on Saturday morning. Ball yeah. banger. Um, yeah, that, that was that one. Um, Group A actually had some good racing. 1990 was solid in Adelaide. Glenn mm. Seaton was fast. The Nissans were dominant, though, once the GDR came out, although 92 was when we got that whole hybrid end of the season thing, the end of Group A, the start of the V8 stuff. But the car that springs into my mind from 92, and there's lots to talk about with the 92 last of Group A Adelaide weekend, mm. is the Coupe BMW oh, that yeah. the Normwell team, Logan Mo ran with um, Paul Morris driving it. And it was a Vic Lee two-litre car from the UK but with the BMW M3 two-and-a-half-litre running gear in it. Because I think that's kind of where BMW are wanting to go for the new rules hmm. for the next year, but it, it wasn't permitted. I don't know what happened to that car, and no one can ever tell me, and it's not popped up anywhere, even though there's the Vic Lee 92 British Touring Car cars, one's in Australia, one's in New Zealand. Hmm. So what was the car that the dude drove at the end of that year? Was it one of them? Was it another one? I don't know. I feel like when we – because I think there were definitely three at one point. Must have been. And I feel like when we went looking for this a long time ago – one popped up in France in in period, and it was after the for sale ads had appeared for that shell in the various industry papers of the era. Mm. So, if there's anyone out there who knows where that car is, <laughs> love to know. It's just yeah. one of those interesting one-off cars that ran um, in Australian touring car racing that wasn't really heard of or seen since, or where it went, or what it did, or no. yeah, it's it's a bit of a strange one. Definitely didn't. Race on in Australia, but Don't that worry. was that was a controversial weekend because there was plenty of poo fights going on over Dick Johnson's Falcon, Glenn Seaton's car was congregation issues. Yeah, who'd have, who'd thought? have thought that'll <laughs> never happen again? No. Um, and it was a lot of it was rigged around um, the cars not being fully finally signed off and approved, who'd have and what that they would thought. Happen? Yeah, and what they thought they should be versus what other people thought they should be, and. Wally story from HRT, you know it, Dick, Glenn Seaton. I think weren't the Fords put to the back of the grid? Both, they were but, deemed yeah. illegal, weren't they? Both the Glenn Seaton and Dick Johnson Ford Falcons were sent to the rear of the grid because their aero packages, so I think that consisted of the front splitter and the rear wing, was different to the spec that had been run at the Sandown 500, which Holden had believed was the final spec. Right, and that's what brought the... The drama. Yes, and that was the first race for that Dick Johnson car, um, the first legal one that they'd built. Again, because mm. the first one mm. um, was built it with, well, sports it in, yeah, <laughs> built, built without specifications. So, so Larry took pole for that weekend, didn't he, in the it's Bob James VL? Because yeah. Jim won both in the Winfield GDR, which was the the it wasn't the Bathurst winning car because it was mm. crashed from Bathurst, so it was the Olufsen Crompton car turned into one, and that was the same weekend that Fuji was on. So. Gibson's had a whole pile of team members up at Japan running one of their old cars um, for the the owners who who were racing it up there at the time. So so Scafi was actually in commentary for that one. I think with mm. Daryl Eastlake, they only ran the the one car, and you you got that a bit in those days of the Adelaide Grand Prix. There were years where some teams didn't go because it wasn't part of their budget. I mean, JPS BMW team didn't do Adelaide in '87. They yeah. were all over Red Rover. Um, so there was a couple of occasions where top flight teams. It wasn't quite like the Sandown 500 was, no. but there was there was a little bit of that, that stuff going on. And 92 turned on some of the best racing. Um, Larry, Thomas Mazira. Um, Brad Jones for Brad, that Because uh, Brad was in the other HRT car, wasn't he? Yeah, and they were both gunning for a drive for 93. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and for, for the sheer spread of cars, there were so many different cars in that sort of late 92 period, they still turned on some damn good racing, actually. Absolutely. It's like that, my memory of the early laps of that Sunday race, everyone was into it at the front mm. of the field. It was great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we went V8s for 93 and the Grand Prix, its time in Adelaide started to, to wind down, but the racing was still really good. I mean, there were some wet races in 94. JB kind of became the guru there in those last couple of years and he was really mm. good on the Gold Coast too. Um but the and the V8s, you know, how many times are you used to hear Big Daryl launch? Oh, the Formula One teams, they're all looking over the pit wall, they love this stuff. I'm sure some of them did keep an eye on it and you know, like, well, that's a bit interested, but yeah. I don't think they were um 
looking for their next Etten Senna or Michael Schumacher from the touring car field um, at that stage. But uh, another thing that springs to mind was you talked about teams running extra cars earlier with JPS. Mm. HRT ran a third car one year in 94, which a lot of people forget. Craig Lowndes certainly hasn't forgotten. No, no. 016. Yes. Only time we've ever seen that number floating around. Um, so that was as a reward for his um, his breakthrough appearance at the 1000, was it not? I'm not sure if it was a reward per se, but it was they had a car, there was an opportunity to run, he was on the scene. It gave them another look at him, that's for sure. But um, He was probably one of the... He was probably the best performer. Well, to be fair, HRT were down a car after early in that race, in the first race when I think Mesera got hit. So, but nevertheless, I think Craig was the best finished HRT. Yeah, driver probably HRT weekend. in that Brock era, those last few years with he and Thomas, they never really had terribly great results in in Adelaide. It seemed to be the Dunlop runners in those early V eight years that were able to yeah. to really rip in. Bow and Perkins had a ding dong in ninety four. That yeah. was. That was absolutely rip up. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, that was great. But obviously, the Grand Prix ends in Adelaide in '95. JB finishes off with a couple of wins there. That was the first year that Super Tours ran at the Australian Grand Prix as well. Oh, Remember yes. that uh, Jim Richards in the Mondeo, Stephen in the Alpha, and Brad Jones in the four wheel drive um, Audi 80. Hmm. And they had a ripping race, a, a race or two. Like it was, it was off the charts. And then the two liter cars came with the V8s to Albert Park. They lasted a couple of years, but it, it, it sort of fell away. But I vividly remember the move to Albert Park because I was there day one of practice. My mate and I, we went with his dad from Ballarat, had a day off school. Very good. Well, these days they have student days at supercar rounds on Fridays. I'm I know, like, right? We used like, to have to yeah. actually take a day off and get mum and dad to write a note and, yeah. you know, go through the full rigmarole. But now kids get sent there as part of curriculum. It's um, great. Well, you love to see it. It was my motor racing university was going back in the day. And I remember standing down at turn three, down the very end before MSAC was completed at the time and seeing, well, it's the first time I saw a Formula One car in real life, which Mm. was, wow. What was it? Michael Schumacher's Ferrari. Uh, He was first out of the pits as reigning world champ. But the V8s, of course, big field, 30-odd of them, was fantastic. But later in the day, we went to the other side of the track and Lowndes had had some issue, something broke in the car or something like that. He came out and was spectating with us <laughs> over at turn, oh, whatever it is, the right-hander at the end of the back straight that yep. brings you back towards the pits, turn 10 or 11 or whatever it is. I haven't got a track map in front of me. He was just standing up there with Paul Wally Weissel, who's been in that chair that you're sitting in on, on the pod with his arms crossed on one of those little concrete block sort of little um, – not a grandstand, but you could just a bunch of people could stand on it just to yeah. peek over the inside concrete wall, and he just stood there and signed autographs, and everyone was like, "Oh, it's Craig." Ooh, okay, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But Brock got the win on the Sunday, mm. and and in those days though, there wasn't there was kind of like a podium for every race. There was no winner overall, or it wasn't a round, so there yeah. wasn't a round win. But I just remember watching it, thinking that was pretty cool. Brock winning. On home soil, he's a Melbourne boy in Melbourne at the first Australian Grand Prix at Albert Park of the new era. Uh, that was cool. But those early years were all tyres. They were all tyres. And once the Dunlop blokes, I mean, their tyre was the tyre to have for the next couple of years because that's when Russell, didn't he win like four in a row one year when they went to four races? He, he swept all three in 97 and all four in 98. And if you remember back in the day, um, Dunlop had that TV commercial where they just took a snippet of one of, I think, the 98 races where complete with um, Daryl Eastlake and John Watson's comedy uh, commentary where um, John Watson said, the XF1 driver says, one of the big reasons for, you see see what's written there on the front bumper? D-U-N-L-O-P. That's why these cars are going so fast. I wonder how much they had to pay to use that vision in an ad. I wouldn't have been cheap. Because that's Formula One management vision. Do you reckon they asked? Probably not. <laughs> I'm thinking they probably didn't. Yeah. Just let, and we get asked quite regularly by our sleuth faithful, when are you going to release the DVDs with the you know the Grand Prix support races? Well, the problem is that we can't because uh, short of having some form of an agreement with Formula One management, they own the copyright to yes. those races, not Channel 9 who broadcast them or Channel 10 or, or Fox in um, the latter years. So uh, that's the reason. Uh, why that is. Yeah, which is a shame and that would probably cost a fair bit of money to liberate that Ooh, as well. Yep. 
and way more than I've got and you've got put together and probably yes. all of our listeners added up as well. So, And we have a lot of listeners, so that is a lot of money. Kevin Schwantz ran in 97. He was another one of those one-off mm. Grand Prix starts. Back when he was um, trying to avoid um, returning to motorcycle racing by going car racing instead and getting all his competitive instincts out that way. Uh, he drove an ex Glen Glen Seaton racing car that was being that had previously been run by raced by Max Dumsney was being mm. run by John Sydney Racing mm. at that point, and that was Seaton's championship winning '93 chassis. Ah, mm. was too. Mm. Yeah, raced on, raced on. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state. And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. But you can't talk about the Grand Prix and supercars and touring cars without Sam Newman. I mean, 2000, <laughs> that was the best PR that Hot Wheels could have ever come up with. Their, their safety cars or the course car or whatever it was, that was Cracker. That yeah, grabbed that a bit cool. of attention. They sponsored the Hot Wheels V8 Showdown or whatever it was called. But to put Sam Newman – and you've got to understand, if you're not in um, an AFL state, Sam Newman was his biggest star for being on the footy show, former AFL or VFL player, uh, played over 300 games for Geelong, was never afraid to have an opinion, and the footy show on Channel 9 was massive, mm. was huge, used to rate its brains off, and – Sam was the biggest part of that whole thing. So when you take – and he's always had a love of cars and racing and he did a bit more racing after this with yes. Nations Cup. and Sandown 500 Pulse. Yeah, 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 Prancing yeah. Horse Ferrari. But they put him in a VS Commodore, which was the older model at the time, a wild card entrant uh, in Hot Wheels livery, number 99. And you know what? As much as everyone made fun of him, he actually did all right. He didn't get lapped. He didn't crash it. I think he ended up in a gravel trap yeah, somewhere. He went through the, the sand line. a couple of times. Yeah, but, that's all right. Know, that's what happens when you push on. But he wasn't, I mean, I don't have the lap times in front of me. He wasn't like 50 seconds off or 30 seconds off. He was like eight, and it's like a five something kilometer lap. So, eight, you're looking it up, aren't I you? I am looking it up. I can tell you've gone quiet for a reason here. To- so, in the final race, when everyone's done, got as much lapping under their belt as possible, the fastest lap of the race was set by John Faulkner at a 159.5. Sam Newman's best time was a two was a um two twelve point two. So okay, so he's how many so seconds? About thirteen. Thirteen in five k's. That's two and a bit of like two manage. and a bit a k. Yeah, it's better than I could manage. That's yeah. for sure. Uh, it was huge. It was a massive deal. It got so much attention, so much PR. That sort of stuff will never happen again. Unfortunately, no, I can't just, think of who you would. Well, who, yeah, yeah, who's the big enough star that could actually that would not pull disgrace it off? themselves by yeah. the wheel? Yeah, I, uh, mm, I can't think of anyone off yeah. the top of my head. But there's been other elements that really stood out. I mean, that was the first time Marcus Ambrose raced a supercar was at Albert Park. Oh one takes pole position. Everyone said he must have chucked. Cut the corner to be able to to yeah, do it. Everyone, Mark's gave said he cut. Well, yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> um, and I've heard it from other people too. But that was at a time too when we had Albert Park was the kickoff. It was mm. the time that you saw the new cars, the new liveries, the new looks, the new drivers with the new teams because the championship hadn't started. It was usually the first kickoff of the season, which was which was great and gave it that added impetus. And I don't remember at that time the whole push for oh this should be part of the championship. It kind of just was what it was, yeah. and that voice got a bit louder into the the sort of mid two thousands was when that started to, I, from my memory, start to get a bit more of a a regular storyline every year. Hey, we want better facilities in our own pit lane, not just a bunch of tents in a park. I yeah, believe, and, and but it was more than that too, mate. It was about being able to be there properly, being able to sell merchandise, have teams oh, be able to do yeah. merchandise. That was a big part of it, and of course thing that we shouldn't forget is there was a year where there was no supercars, V8 supercars as they were then at Albert Park in 2007? Correct, yeah. No supercars, plural. There was one. Ah, there was one. Tell our listeners why. So for the Ultimate Speed Challenge, um, they still wanted to use a V8 supercar as the benchmark, as a like a local racing benchmark. Mm. So you had Larry Perkins in a BMW 3 Series road car. You had Jack Perkins in, I think it was Chassis PE40, so a relatively recent 
VZ Commodore, VY Commodore supercar. And you had Sebastian Vettel in a, <laughs> in a current spec BMW a very F1 young, car. fresh Sebastian Vettel. Before he'd started a Formula One race, I think. or No, sorry, he'd, he'd done yeah, one the year before. He'd done one the year before yes. filling in, hadn't he? But still, he was... Who's he's he? not a four-time world champion. No, no, no. He wasn't a worldwide name that everybody would know who he was, what he looked like. But the great irony of that weekend that we say there was no uh, V8 supercars. There wasn't. No races. They weren't part of it. Mm. V8s, Avesco as they were, put their foot down and said, well, were they V8 supercars by that stage? Anyway, whatever they were, they went, no, no, no. No, we're standing our ground. No, we can't come to a deal. Uh, we, we're not going. But I reckon half the field was still there. Because they had sponsor commitments. Yes. They all had dinners with sponsors in Melbourne, corporate appearances in the boxes. A lot of their sponsors were at the Grand Prix. So I just have a vivid memory of seeing all these V8 <laughs> supercar drivers far more relaxed than they ever were because they were just having a weekend of wandering around, doing some chats and meeting some punters and yeah, um, doing some dinners and all that so- sort of stuff. It was probably the easiest racetrack weekend they've ever had wearing team gear. So... Uh, that was a bit strange, but it all came back together for the following year. And they've always tried in that period since, to, well, until it became part of the championship, to use the Grand Prix as a guinea pig and play with stuff and test race formats and try different things. And they got straight into it. Like, oh, wait, the manufacturer's <laughs> challenge, yes. whereby, right, oh, it's Holden and Ford. We're going to have one line, one row of the grid be all Holdens and one side be all Fords. Which is a great idea, except there were more Holdens than there were Fords. That so you sucked. had Paul it Morris sucked. starting 31st in a 29-car yeah. field. <laughs> You did a story about that on the website once, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's a, if you ever read that? It was Jordan Trelawney. Oh, Jordan Trelawney yeah. on v8sleuth.com. It's strange but true. Have a look at it. It's, uh, it was strange. It was true. I forgot too, 2004, Rick Kelly got fined five grand, remember, for making comments that were um, about rustling. I think he and Russell had come together on the track and Rick had ended up in the fence. That was at a time when a lot of these fines were getting handed out for bringing the sport into disrepute. <laughs> and and I've, I vaguely, I can't remember exactly what he said on the TV interview, but it was nothing that was too out of control. But he got pinged and here we are, um, what are we, nearly 20 years on and we're talking about people getting controlled and what they can and can't say and this and that and whatever. But well, In this case, it's what they didn't say rather than what they did say. Oh, no, he got five grand for what he said. So. Oh, I mean like oh, the now. now. Yeah, 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 now it's uh, – same but different in, in a way. But that manufacturer's challenge, oh, they, they tried so many different – there was one year, I think it was 2012, where they said, no, no, we're going to have a qualifying race and then that determines the grid for the three races. I'm like, it looks like a race, smells like, like a race, yeah. it's a race. It's a bit like the, the Sandown 500 qualifying races and stuff like that. So I think if you look deeply in the files, there's a um, – that determined the official qualifying order, but it's probably Dr. Racewind from whoever won it. Mark Winterbottom. It was a Frosty. Okay. Frosty, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, oh, again. It was an elimination format race It was, too. that's forgot, right. Yeah, I didn't Every realize few that. laps, uh, the last car got benched. Yeah, because I was thinking, why on earth did only 10 cars finish this race? Yeah, yes. that's why. It was a bit like the old Toka shootout. Mm, yeah. If you were the last car after each lap, you got Off you told went. to go to the pit lane, which was... A bit different. Uh, they weren't afraid to try different things. There was that time that John Bow and Brad Jones had a one-two in 05. Yes. With the the right call, they were the only ones to go for slicks on a for a well a race that started wet and worked out that they came on through. They still both talk about it like, geez. Well, why wouldn't you? You think like, they won the world championship? Those two blokes, Jesus. <laughs> well, was it a world championship race? Well, this wasn't a championship race. Yes. Uh, recapping a couple of things. I mean. The, the other things that spring to mind for me, Russell Ingalls' debut for Stone Brothers, mm. he won. Very emotional victory. Because Barry Sheen had died, hadn't he? He was. He oh, he's was really crooked. He died close. not long after. Yeah. It was like a week or two later. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Barry helped click the deal together for, for Russell to go from Perkins's to, to Stoney's. Um, and then they started playing with f- race formats and um, there was a bit of everything going on back there, but it was always the way that you saw. I mean, that's when Craig Lowndes made his first start with Triple Eight, 2005. Yes, yeah. Um, you always got that first look at the new driver, new team. It's where FPR debuted mm. uh, in 2003. There was there was so many of those things. I reckon one of the best races, though, was 06. Steve mm. Richards in the Jack Daniels car. He's in a war with, I think, Scafie, Todd Kelly, 
Lowndes, I think. Lowndes, I think, was in it. Maybe Murph was not far away. Dumbrell was having a good run that weekend. And he won two of the races, but the first one he raced, which I, th- I think it was the Saturday race from memory, there was a classic overtaking move over the other side of the circuit with the, the seas parted and he charged on through and that gave Jack Daniels its first win in its first year in V8 supercars as well. So I reckon that's one of Richo's best wins. Oh, I totally agree. It was a real, really good fighting victory. Um he was also one of three Perkins cars that were in the field that day. Is that that's the year that Murph didn't run because his car was smashed in Adelaide, so they put Jack Perkins in a Perkins black car, but put fifty one on it to that's the fulfill one. the entry obligation. That's that is right. the one. Yeah, so that was his first year of um, of development series, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, jeez. Time's flowing. Time's yeah. flowing. But, but of all of these, and we've got so many moments. There's a few more we'll, we'll go through. I cannot beat 2011. Yes. It is the moment of moments. The Jason Richards, he didn't even win the race. But I think everyone forgets that bit. You kind of almost default to thinking that he won the race. Yeah. He did and he finished second. Garth Tander won that race that day. But the fact that he was even driving that car was absolutely insane. He was so sick. Um, He'd run in Adelaide in that DVS race in a Ferrari GT car. But I – and the – that's what irks me so much about it is that it wasn't part of the championship. Yeah. So, you know, every time we go to Albert Park now or every time you go to a new tr- a track every year, the broadcast wheels out the great old vision of all the stuff that's gone on at that track in the past and we've got that shitty issue with because of the vision rights that – and no one's going to bother going through the time and effort and money to be able to maybe clear something, but that one of the most – special, memorable, moving moments in the sport's history is kind of not going to be able to be celebrated via the regular means of yeah. audiovisual. No, it is an absolute shame. What can you say? I no. mean, it is it is what it is, but it will keep us talking about it because I reckon if you were there that day or you watched it on telly, you would mm. 100% um, never forget it. Speaking of things that people forget, everyone celebrates Scott McLaughlin's first supercars win at Pukekohe. They all forget that it was at Albert Park. Yes. Was it the final race of the mm. 2013 weekend that yep. Scotty Mack got his first win? Yep. Yep, sure was. But, again, that thing, if it's not part of the championship, it's kind of over there. It's not part of the broadcast deal. Remember that that was at a time when supercars were back on seven as the championship. Yes. Yeah. But Channel 10 still did the Grand Prix, and that was their one go every year to do um, V8 supercars. Yes. Yeah. And. For a time there, it was a certain Richard Crail and Jack Perkins who were the voices of the Grand Prix V8 supercars. Of course, Rich these days as well. He's big ticket. He's uh, he's F1. Like you know, he's he's the man. It's true. He's moved on. He's well, moved up. Let's not forget that that um those commentary appearances regularly earned him the accolade of um V8 Supercars Media Association Commentator of the Year. I think he won it like forty two times in a row, didn't he? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Reigning champion. <laughs> Well, yeah. Permanent <laughs> yeah. champion, yeah. no. Reigning champion permanent emeritus. still and yeah. overall carryover champion. Yeah. Um, I remember the Pepsi Max crew dominating 15, the, the FGX Falcon, but there was always the t- thing. Remember that Supercars put a rule in to discourage teams from not trying at the Grand <laughs> yes. Prix. There was one year that the Valvoline cars mysteriously went no good. Yeah. And were very slow down the back of the field. But then they talk, They made the mistake of talking about it. Yeah, that was their saying, biggest no, problem. We, we, we totally t- treated that as a death session. Yeah, correct, because no points on the line. Yeah. And that was going on a fair bit. But other teams were doing it not as uh, – far more subtly. Yes. Trying to set up changes that perhaps they wouldn't do on a championship weekend mm. with points on the line. And it, and, and it was really that mid-2000s period that the push for – being part of the championship became a big, big focal point. But getting their own pit lane was a big part of things to be able to have compulsory pit stops, far more professional for the sponsors. And, mm. I mean, look, Formula One is the Grand Prix. Yes. But supercars, and people can talk this down all they like, but the year that the supercars weren't running, I think it was Porsche Carrera Cup, Aussie Racing Cars, Utes, I think were maybe there that year. It's not the same. Yeah. I mean, it was. it's a part of that event that has been – right through from Adelaide in 85, all the way through. Without it, it's not quite the same. No, totally agreed. You 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 knew the difference. You knew something wasn't quite right. No, no, totally, totally. And then down the track, 
once we was it 2018, wasn't it, that we got championship points yes. finally um, given. So that's when Scott Pye gets his first win in fading, fading, fading light, and that's WAU's first win for them as that new entity. Yeah. Um, after the buy-in from Zach Brown, Richard Dean, and, and Michael Andretti. Um, but I, I, you know what I really love, and I think this is a great thing, and that other rounds, and I think we have talked about this before, I love that we do the Larry Perkins Trophy oh, at totally. Albert Park. It, it's a beautiful blend. He's a Melbourne guy. It's a Melbourne event. He just lives near the track, actually. <laughs> um, yes. He's Formula One. He's V8 supercars. He raced Grand Prix. He raced V8s. He raced at Albert Park. It's a perfect synergy for a trophy to be named and to be in honour of him. We should do it at more events. Oh, more totally events. agreed. A Queensland, a Dick Johnson Trophy at Queensland Raceway. I'm sure there's other. We don't, we don't have a round there, but well, yeah. When we inevitably go back, Gold Coast. Yeah. Yeah. Gold Coast is Gold probably Coast the work. most appropriate one. Yeah. Um, what would you have done for Newcastle? Stuart. Don't think it. Don't think it has to be specifically about the location, though. Well, I was going to say Stuart McColl. Yeah, it sprung into my mind. I always go and see the little plaque on the um, the starters stand down uh, at Newcastle that we were able to get involved with supercars to get that on there in 2017, which mm. um, for those who don't know, Stu was killed 20 years ago this year in yeah. a crash at Phillip Island and um, raced Formula Ford, Formula Holden, uh, production cars, had tested a V8 and was about to test for FPR. Um, it could have been part of their endurance lineup that year or in future years, but um, uh, he was killed in August '03. So, um, given he was from Newcastle, we spoke to Supercars, to James Warburton at the time, and when I say we, um, Jamie Winkup, Will Davison, Alex Davison, Paul Umbrell, just to get something little to just sort of um, get in place there. So, uh, there's a plaque on the starters, uh, Gantry. Yeah, yeah. Gantry is the word, isn't it? Yeah. So. Um, but obviously, Stewie never raced supercars. He did do a, a, a couple of laps in a Kmart Gibson car one day mm. at Calder a couple of years before that. But um, when he was part of that Kmart sort of sponsorship lineup, but uh, um, it's probably a bit tricky to have a, a trophy named after someone that didn't race and people probably wouldn't know. But I think something like that, I think New South Wales, and I saw him on the weekend, Colin Bond. Oh, yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah. that'd be cool. Um, he's at. Plenty of supercars rounds. We saw him, didn't we, at the Motorsport Australia Awards yeah, a few weeks yeah, back or a month or so ago. Um, always in good form, Bondi, and he's always hanging around Team 18 when he's when he's at the track. So, yeah, that's a whole other – actually, you know what? That's another podcast for us to do. Yes. What are the trophies that you would name after for – I mean, we've got the Jason Richards Trophy for the New Zealand round. There's when the Brock Trophy. Yep. There's the Larry Trophy. Let's get our listeners – just send us think. notes, send us emails, send us messages of what rounds you think trophies should be named after for that don't have them at the moment. I look forward to the scrap for the um, Simmons Plains trophy over the prom- prominent Tasmanian race car drivers that could all be options there. Okay, I've got this sorted. Bow, Ambrose, Steel Cage. Oh, what about John Goss, mate? Mm, okay, he can go in too. Like, yeah. He can be the special guest referee or the, the guest enforcer. <laughs> Yes. Can you see the WWE fan in me coming out here? Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've started something, haven't we? We've started uh, something. I think if you've got an idea, send us an email through our website, v8sleuth.com.au. There's a contact page on there. Send us your idea. We'd love to hear about it and we'll do a pot on it somewhere down the track or we'll include it in one of our Q&As or, or something along those lines. So um, – Grand Prix, special event, supercars and touring cars played a big part in it and it's been cool actually to uh, look back. Is there any other – one other little thing, mm. one thing before we go. What year was it that Waters and McLaughlin crashed into one another on the roll-around <laughs> lap and didn't even start the race? That was 2019. I was actually watching that – I'd been watching the qualifying session from Trackside. It was first the F1 qualifying session from Trackside because I'd never – all that time I was working at Fox, I was always busy. So it was the first time I was able to actually watch F1 cars on track was in 2019 so that session finishes and then the supercars come rolling around for their um their recon lap heading out of the pits to the grid and 17 and 6 come past very slowly and very damaged (laughs) (laughs) what's going on here Uh, i will say i will say the other thing that that pole position because scott mclaughlin was meant to start on pole position for that race was his 50th championship pole position and one of my favorite stats that i've ever come across is that of that 50 championship pole positions, 17 were set in with him driving car 33. 
and 33 of them were set with him driving car 17. That's insane. Yeah. That's actually, yeah, yeah. I love a good stat as yeah, much I as anybody. Yeah, I you enjoy that. And I do remember that one now. That is some of your finest work, Yeah, actually. That is up there. That's hard to, that's got irony, statistical brilliance, number trade-off. It's got it all. Yeah. That's, that's gold standard, gold plated. That's hard to beat that one. Well played. Thank well played. You. Points to you. You can uh, yes. you can have the rest of the day off. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we love to do these episodes. We've done some category-based ones in the past. It's a chance for us to just reminisce about some stuff that we've forgotten, stuff that we've held firm, stuff that we've looked up, stuff that we hadn't remembered. Hope you've enjoyed uh, having a bit of a look back at Grand Prix, Touring Car and Supercars races. Of course, the Supercars will be at Albert Park. Uh, a couple of weeks after we uh, run this podcast out on release. Uh, I'm going to be there. You're going to have to put up with me at the Grand Prix because I'm calling supercars uh, for the big screen coverage on the track. So don't ask me for any shout-outs because the crowd at Albert Park is quite large and uh, it would take more than a couple of supercar races to say hello to everybody and <laughs> send out the shout-outs. But looking forward to getting there. Uh, looking forward for everyone to come along. Last year was kind of the re-emergence of Melbourne post-COVID and it was it was simply amazing. And, of course, Formula One's gone nuts in the last couple of years and it's a sellout. Um mm. Is it every day sold out? I think most days yeah. GA, certainly Sunday and Saturday um, sold out for mm. GA. I think there are grandstand tickets still available and multi-day passes still available. But By the way, we're not on a deal here for ticketing no, no, no. plugs or anything like that. We're just, uh, <laughs> this is just information yeah, go, coming go from someone who Grand Prix tried Prix to website. buy a ticket and struggled. Yeah, exactly. Go and look up the, uh, the Grand Prix website. Later this week, as we do every week, Repco Supercars Weekly is back. I'll have the latest in. News and views from the world of supercars and every Tuesday, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast with Stefan Bartholomeus and Andrew Van Leeuwen. I wish those two would have shorter names. It takes me a while to say both of them if I go long form rather than Stefan ABL. Well, at least we're not Wait, putting them on a windscreen or a side wind or a mustache. You have to wrap it up the whole way around the car, <laughs> I reckon. Anyway, hey, thanks everyone for tuning in. V8 Salute Podcast, Will and Aaron, over and out. Hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, got some special plans coming for next week's episode. Tune in next week and you'll find out. Thanks for listening again. Thanks for your support. We'll chat to you soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.